Well, Finding Rest in Jesus, that's the title, as you see, of the message this morning. You know, we, we, we do live in a world where people desperately are in need of rest. I'm listening for some amens out here. All right, okay, yeah, and I, especially you guys that have been on trips. You know, I'm surprised to see you still sitting here. Yeah, amen. Good for you guys. But by rest, I'm not talking about needing more sleep, obviously. Although that certainly is the case for millions of Americans, millions of people, in fact. In fact, so many people have difficulty getting enough sleep, getting enough physical rest in our culture that we now have a whole branch of medical specialists that deal with insomnia. And that's because restful sleep is, quite frankly, essential to maintaining good health. That is equally as important as exercise and good nutrition. Because sleep deprivation does take a serious toll on our bodies. And, and interestingly, the two most common reasons people give for not being able to rest properly are stress and worry. And I think it's quite telling. Yes, you know, people, we do need physical rest. But people's greatest need for rest is at the heart level. It's at the core of our very being. We can call that a restless heart. We can call that a restless soul. But there's a deep internal sense of angst and turmoil. And, and, and it's a universal problem for humanity. I mean, I've been there. Have you? You know, perhaps some of you are there now. It's certainly not difficult to find issues these days that prompt a person's heart to be, to be restless, to be uh, unsettled, as it were. I mean, uh, the list is endless. We have the, the looming threat of, of, of war in the world. We, we have the threat of disease and, and, and illnesses and the challenges of, of economic instability, and the pressures from our work difficulties associated with parenting and, and educating and, and caring for children, and sorting out the, the multitude of demands that, that people place on you and, and fulfilling desires in your life and navigating through relationships with other people in your life. And then there's the uncertainty of tomorrow. I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These issues, these are the kinds of issues that can prey on your heart. And they can bring a sense of exhaustion. They can bring a sense of weariness, of mental fatigue into your life. These are the issues, the kind of issues, that make a person cry out for inner tranquility. A tranquility that sometimes seems impossible to find. So, so what's a person to do? Redouble your efforts, run away, <laughs> get more sleep. <laughs> no. Duh, the only lasting cure for man's deep sense of restlessness and fatigue is, is found in that vital, that ongoing relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And I can say that with certainty because of who he is. And on the basis of his true identity, Jesus himself offers an invitation to find that rest. An invitation to people who are burdened, 
people who are weighed down in life, people who, who yearn to find real answers to the problems they face in life. And we see that invitation in Matthew 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter 11 of Matthew. And we're going to look at verses 28, 29, and 30. There we read Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Wow. I mean, that's quite a promise, is it not? No wonder these words are some of the most familiar, uh, the most soothing words in all of Scripture. And I'm guessing that every one of us is dealing with more internal struggles, more internal concerns than can be seen on the surface. And who among us Quite frankly, at least at times, does not find our hearts disturbed or restless or anxious. And yet, as we see, Jesus offers rest to us. Why would anyone turn down such an invitation? Let's look a bit closer at this invitation and see if we can't discover some reasons why his rest might elude us. Now, to fully appreciate the magnitude of Jesus' invitation here, we need to see it in the context of the preceding paragraph. Jesus at, is at the point in his earthly ministry when his popularity is, is beginning to wane. The opposition of his enemies is, is on the rise. And so despite his authoritative teaching about spiritual realities, despite the many miracles that he performed, all of which pointed to his Messiahship, Jesus was largely rejected by the inhabitants of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. At first glance, you think, wow, that rejection defies logic. But Jesus knows that logic isn't the issue here. So back up in verses 25 and 26, we read this. He offers a brief prayer of praise to God. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants or babes. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So God the Father is sovereign, of course, over all of heaven, all of earth, including the way he makes known his revelation to people. God's truth is often missed. It's hidden from those who are considered wise and intelligent, at least in their own eyes, and probably many others as well. But that very same truth is accepted or embraced by those who are humble enough 
to admit that they cannot figure out the deep mysteries of God on their own. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that intelligent people are excluded from God's kingdom. I mean, you look at church history and throughout it, many of the world's wisest and most intelligent people have come to Jesus in faith. But human pride in one's own abilities, one's, one's own intelligence, is clearly a barrier to receiving the truth of God. And that's true for our generation as well. I mean, in our society, the self-aggrandizing arrogance is, is literally permeating our society, and people are increasingly bold in their rejection of the living God and their rejection of the living Christ. You know, it was just this past Good Friday that the New York Times ran an article that mocked God, mocked the Bible, mocked the Jewish Passover. And it was written by an author who expressed the confidence in his own ability to dismiss all three. It was an article full of bitterness and hostility toward the things of God. And we see that same attitude enveloping the world on a, on a global level as well, which will impact us. Uh, for example, again, the, the, the World Economic Forum. That's a combination of political and, and business and, and cultural leaders whose stated goal is to shape, shape global, regional, and industry, industry agendas. And its founder and executive chairman, Klaus Schwab, tabbed Yuval Harari to be his senior advisor. This is a man who confidently stated in a recent interview, there is no God in the universe and there are no human rights. Now, we can expect more of that same kind of arrogance and the resulting worldview to become dominant in our age as this age winds down. I mean, millions of people express confidence in their own ability to explain the universe, the origin of life, humanity, all apart from God, or even to the point of smugly claiming that God does not exist. The wise and intelligent of today dismiss the risen Christ as quickly as inhabitants of those Galilean cities dismissed his messiahship. I mean, can't you almost hear them say, we know too much to listen to Jesus. We have the definitive answer here, so that's it. That's final. There's nothing else we need to know. We know everything that needs to be known. You know, the first condition needed to learn is a conscious awareness of our own limitations. I mean, and that's true in any thing you take on. I mean, for example, if I, if I wanted to go out and, and prune my apple tree, I don't just grab a pair of clippers or grab a saw and start hacking away. No. I would hope I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Not only kill the tree, but there goes the fruit, huh? No, I, I'd recognize my own ignorance in that whole area, and I'd, I'd learn from someone who was an experienced horticulturalist. And when you learned to drive, did you didn't just jump in the driver's seat when you were six years old and take off, did you? Well, unless, of course, you lived in Texas. <laughs> I remember doing that. <laughs> No, not really. They don't. You wouldn't do that. You, you would season a little bit, mature a little bit, and then you would learn from an experienced driver. 
When a person admits his ignorance in humility, then he has fulfilled the very first condition of acquiring knowledge. And, and that's what Jesus illustrates here by referring to babes or infants. They don't have, have that, that built-in, arrogant, I-know-everything attitude. Well, at least not until they're teenagers. And that's why when Jesus was asked by his disciples, who was the greatest in the kingdom of God? He responded in Matthew 18 by saying, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In general, we can certainly say that children are more trusting, they're more open, they are more eager to learn than the adult who thinks he has arrived. So the contrast that Jesus is pointing out here is not between IQs, but between attitudes, between pride and humility. And God the Father has planned the path of his revelation in this way, and thus Jesus says it is pleasing in his sight. And then in verse 27, Jesus makes this powerful statement. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, this statement explains Jesus' relationship to the Father as well as his role in the process of revelation to men and women. Jesus and the Father are one. And, and, and the reality of that relationship that he just described is crucial for us to recognize. The reason Jesus is able to promise us something that no one else can, the reason that he can provide answers concerning the deepest issues of life, is because he and the Father are one. This, I would say, would qualify him as an expert, if you will, on the issues of life and death, and on all matters that affect you and me in this world and the next. Listen, who else could we go to in search of solid answers for life? Answers that are true, answers that are trustworthy. Well, no one. He has no equal. Man, the created creature, left to his own resources, has absolutely no way to discover who God is. I mean, our finite minds simply cannot grasp the things of God. Man's philosophy, man-made religions, totally incapable of reasoning out God or his truth. And therefore, God himself must break into the darkness, break into the emptiness of man's finite understanding, and to show, to reveal himself before people can ever really know him. And that's exactly what Jesus, of course, has done. Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
and through whom also he made the world. John 1.18, no one has seen, the, has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, Jesus, has explained him. So, so you see, on the basis of who Jesus really is, that's why he's offer, uh, able to offer this, this invitation in verse 28. Come to me, he says, all who are weary, who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, says Jesus, an invitation to, to put your faith, to put your trust in him. And you think about it, in, in, in whom, in what do you really trust? What is really trustworthy? So to recognize who Jesus is, to understand that he is the only one who gives you access to God the Father, the one through whom salvation is offered, the one who reconciles you to God the Father and provides forgiveness of your sins, that is a game changer in terms of finding rest for your heart, rest for your soul. You know, many people who seek God struggle to achieve, or they struggle to maintain their, their right standing before God through self-effort. Jesus' original audience was full of people who were weary. They were people who, who labored, they were heavy burdened. They were spiritually exhausted and frustrated because they were weighed down by these layers of legalism from the scribal law, from the oral, oral tradition of the Jews. Hundreds of standards and rules and formulas that tried to cover every, every aspect of human activity. Well, imagine yourself trying to remember them all, much less trying to do them. Hey, listen, I have trouble remembering what remote to use much less a, a phone book of regulations to be right or to get right with God. Jesus offers his rest to his audience, exactly the kind of rest needed by them or anyone else yearning to connect to God and to make sense out of life. To get right with God, a person needs only come to Christ, come to Jesus in faith. To experience rest in Jesus is to be freed from the uncertainties of running from one philosophy to another, from one religion to another, hoping somehow, somewhere, you'll discover God's truth. See, Jesus lifts this burden for those who come to him because of who he is. He frees people from the burden of trying to, to earn God's favor through all kinds of works and, and, and self-effort. And yet, and yet, how many Christians do you know that do not enjoy their rest in his provision because they think somehow, some way, they can lose their salvation after they come to him in faith? 
You know, over the years, I've encountered any number of Christians who have trouble resting in the internal security that Jesus offers, even though they have genuinely come to him in faith and trust. And if this is something that has plagued your rest in Jesus, then I would encourage you to settle in your mind the completeness, the permanence of the salvation Jesus provides. Now, obviously, there's not time this morning to delve deeply into this subject, but I mention it because it is an important that one understands that when it comes to finding rest in Jesus. You should know that salvation, I'm talking justification theologically, salvation is a gift. And that once it's received, it is possessed and it cannot be lost. That's guaranteed by the fact that our salvation involves the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Placing our faith in Christ brings us into a relationship with all three members of the Trinity. Again, which guarantees and assures us that our salvation is eternally secure. Yes, yes, even for those believers who struggle in life. Sometimes you and I cannot know for sure whether a person is truly born again. But, but if, if he or she is, then that person's salvation is secure forever according to God's revealed word. You see, the fact of our salvation rests on God's guarantee. Its truthfulness does not rest on how I feel or even my experiences. To experience rest in Jesus Know that if you have genuinely trusted Christ in faith, it's a done deal. Theologians call that confident realization that, that a person has eternal life. They call that assurance. Now, now bear in mind, when we're talking about eternal security as a doctrine, it's, it's, it's a question of fact based on the Word of God. Assurance is another matter. It's a matter of what a person believes at a given time concerning his or her salvation. But here's the point. Don't underestimate. Don't underestimate the value, the assurance of your salvation, justification, is when it comes to finding rest in Jesus. You know, if you lack assurance, if you, lack, if you don't understand that, then your heart will become anxious. If you lack assurance, you will always be looking over your shoulder trying to base your security solely on your personal performance. And that's why resting in the truth that you are eternally saved when you place your faith, your trust in Christ, for your justification before God is essential to your sustained growth in grace, your sustained growth in the knowledge of God in Christ. After all, if you, if you can't get beyond step one in the Christian life, it's going to be very difficult to take other steps in the progression of your sanctification, your, that is, your growth toward maturity in Christ. I mean, you spend all, all your time working on the first floor, going back to the first floor of your house all the time, you're going to have trouble building that second and third floors. You know, some common reasons I've heard that believers give over the years during their for losing, for not trusting in their salvation, include things like, well, you know what? I can't remember the exact time I, I received Christ. Well, let me tell you, if they're genuinely saved, their conversion did occur at a specific time 
And yet a person may not know exactly when that happened. I don't think anyone grows into conversion, but, but we do grow into our comprehension of conversion. And if that's your situation, then a simple solution is to make that day today that you'll remember as you come to the Lord. I know there are other people that have questioned me in terms of the correctness of the procedure through which they came to Christ. Maybe I should have gone forward. I did it in the closet. All these different methods. Did I say the right prayer? Listen, methodology isn't the issue. The issue is connecting your faith, your trust for salvation to the person of Christ, Jesus Christ. That's the issue. And I know sometimes they're shaken when certain sins come into their lives. They think that, well, my goodness, uh, I can't be saved if I became entangled in this or that sin. Again, security in Christ never gives us license to sin. Look at Romans 9. No license to sin. But at the same time, sin does not cause us to lose our salvation. Sin cannot pry us out of Jesus' hand. Christian life never includes sinlessness, for we all stumble in many ways, says James. Again, never excuses sin, but neither does sin cause us to forfeit our salvation. And God deals with our sin on an ongoing basis in terms of our fellowship with Him, as noted in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. So the bottom line is this. Your confidence in the, the reality of your salvation really depends on three aspects of your walk with Christ. And I think the first one is an understanding of the completeness of the salvation provided by Jesus. I mean, taken as a whole, this, this whole, the matter of eternal security of the believer rests on the nature of our justification before God. It is a work of God, not a work of man. It rests on the power and the faithfulness of God, not on the strength or faithfulness of men. If salvation were by works, if, if, if our justification before God were a reward for faith, for as a good work, well, hey, then it's understandable how our security would be in question practically daily. So we need an understanding of that. Secondly, there is a subjective element to the assurance that relates to your life and experiences as a Christian. I mean, when you come to Jesus in faith, you receive the gift of salvation, justification. There should be some confirming changes in your life. And, and when a person sees some of those changes, then it can help reassure us that we have indeed received new life. For example, we should be seeing changes with keeping His commandments as we go through Scripture. We should see changes in terms of loving other believers and changes in terms of doing right things according to the Lord. First John 2.29 says, I know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And then later in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin 
because he is born of God. He's not saying an individual sin. The translation there kind of gives you that impression, a sin. No, the key word there, and that's why the word practices is in there, conveys a sense of continuous action. That no one who abides in Christ makes it a habit to be continually sinning. Old patterns of sin are replaced by new patterns of faith and love as a person grows in Christ. Now again, you know, some people get fouled up because they're not perfect. We will never keep all his commandments, nor will we love all other believers, nor will we always, always do the right thing. But the fact that these experiences have come into a person's life whereas they were absent before provides assurance that the new life is present. And the third thing I think that's really helpful in terms of this whole matter of resting in Christ, in terms of your security in Him, is simply by accepting by faith the biblical promises of salvation. God's Word is the objective basis for our security because it declares that we are saved through faith. And therefore, you and I can believe Him in His Word and be assured that what He says is true. Take Him at His Word. Because your salvation does rest upon grace and the promises and and, and the works of God. You and I can join the Apostle Paul and say this, that I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. So let me just say that all that to point out that understanding your security in Jesus is a huge part of finding that rest in him. But there's more. Because your walk with Jesus only begins when you initially come to him in faith. It continues throughout this life into eternity. But He makes a provision for his rest. Under those circumstances, he makes provision for his rest to accompany us all along our journey. And that includes the difficult times that will come our way. Verses 29 and 30, Jesus invites us, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. That is, it's comfortable. It's pleasant. And my burden is light. See, this is an invitation for discipleship. And it's extended to those who come to him, faith. Now, obviously, we know what a yoke is. A yoke is a part of a harness that's put on an animal. It was used to control, to to direct An animal as it pulls a a wagon or or a plow in the field. And so the word yoke became a metaphor for submission and guidance. The students were said to be under the yoke of a certain teacher. So here Jesus invites those who come to him to put on his yoke and to learn from him. There is a difference between being saved and being a disciple. I mean, not all people who are saved are growing disciples. 
although all who are growing disciples are certainly saved. Discipleship deals with a person's relationship to Jesus as their teacher, as their master, as their Lord. You know, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where we're told to make disciples, we see the disciples are first saved, that is, baptized, synonymous for their salvation, identification, and then they're discipled through learning and obeying. Learning and obeying are, are not prerequisites for the initial belief. They are products, products of believing. And so a saved person can generally be saved yet not be taught, at least not very much. I mean, think, for example, a deathbed convert. I mean, they don't have an opportunity to be taught. They don't have an opportunity to be discipled. Nevertheless, they're saved. Furthermore, disciples come in a lot of different shapes and forms. You see that in the local church. Honestly, some disciples learn little. Some learn a lot. Some are, are, are really committed to the Lord and His ways. Others are not so much so. Some are bold. Some are fearful. Some are very open. And some are more secret, like Joseph of Arimathea. See, no disciple, I don't believe, will fail to learn something. But how much he will learn, no one can say, I don't believe. No disciple will, will fail to bear fruit, but just how much and how visible and how long, I don't think it's possible to say. Neither can anyone place quantitative requirements on learning or fruitfulness in order to prove the reality of one's discipleship. And that should be encouraging to you wherever you are in your spiritual pilgrimage. When it comes to finding rest in Jesus, the more a person learns, the more a person obeys, the greater will be that person's rest. That's because learning and obeying under Jesus is much different than any other yoke you could ever hope to find. And like the matter of your salvation, your eternal destiny, the quality of your discipleship experience is dependent upon your humility and your understanding of who Jesus really is. Unlike the heavy, ill-fitting yoke laid upon the people by the Pharisees, by scribal law, Jesus' yoke is easy. That is, his yoke is good and pleasant and well-fitting. Indeed, it's, it's a tailor-made yoke for you. And furthermore, Jesus says that, that his burden upon you is light. Jesus is not going to oppress you. He's not going to give you a burden that's too heavy to carry. And that's in direct contrast with the burden heaped upon people by the Pharisees. Jesus notes that in the 23rd chapter of Matthew where he says about the Pharisees they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger however under the direction and the control of Jesus you will find rest for your soul that is the promise and the ultimate reason for this 
The reason that Jesus' yoke is different than man-made yokes is because Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. Now let that sink in. Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. You know, not embracing this truth about their Lord is why I think a lot of people don't have rest in Jesus along their earthly journey. You know, Matthew eleven twenty nine here is the text from which Dane Ortland derived the title of his book, Gentle and Lowly. How many of you have read that book? You know, it was the book of the month here a while back. If you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you to read it. And I say that because it will greatly enhance your restfulness in Jesus through all the situations that come into your life. Perhaps many Christians are, are not aware of the true nature of Jesus' heart because they have simply overlooked it. I mean, as Ortland points out, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. And it's here. Jesus says that he is gentle in heart. Again, in the words of Ortland, he says, Jesus is not trigger happy. Not harsh, not reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Indeed, his invitation to discipleship is an invitation to rest in those open arms. Jesus also says again that he's humble or lowly in heart, which points to being accessible. Again, let me quote Ortland. He says, For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. If you come to Jesus in faith, you, you should come running to his open arms, looking to him for all guidance in life, making him Lord and teacher and master of your life. Learning and obeying constitute the very essence of discipleship. Listen, you want answers for life? Then learn and obey. Follow him because he cares for you and his heart is gentle and humble. Oh, but just say, wait a minute. I'm not really worthy. Look at me. My, my life is a confused mess. Well, what does he say in verse 28? He tells you who qualifies for fellowship with him, all those who are weary and heavy laden. As Orland says, you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required, he says. I give you rest. His rest is a gift, not a transaction. See, as a child of God, perhaps you still find yourself 
uh, restless, um, burdened by concerns that are imposed upon you in this fallen world in which we live. Perhaps you are in a disturbed state, often distraught, often discouraged. And I encourage you to put your shoulder into his yoke in order that he might bear the burden and you will find that rest. I was reading a book designed for discipleship by Dwight Pentecost and in his college days he cites this example about this passage. He was teaching Sunday school, a little rural church and one day he was visiting people in the area and this Sunday school superintendent he spotted this farmer plowing a team with a team of oxen. But he was shocked by the fact that one of the oxen was huge and then there was just a, a little a little book, a young oxen. And he couldn't understand how in the world this farmer could plow with such unequal animals in the yoke. And so his superintendent stops the car and says, look, I want you to know something. Notice that the large ox is pulling all the weight. You see the way those traces are a hook to the yoke? The large ox is pulling the weight. The little bullock is being broken into the yoke, but he's not really pulling that much weight, if any. And so Pentecost says it took him back to this passage. In the normal yoke, the load is equally distributed between two that are yoked together, but when we're yoked with Jesus Christ, he bears the load. We are the yoked with him. We share in the joy, the accomplishment of his labor. But without the burden, without the burden of the yoke. But he does say the tragedy is for so many Christians is that some of us never have been broken into the yoke beside the Lord. Learn to walk yoked to Jesus Christ, learning and obeying, and you shall find rest for your soul. That's Jesus' promise based on who he is. But I want to be clear about this when I'm talking rest. I'm saying this, the life of a disciple is not a life of passivity. It's not a, a life of inactivity. It's a life of a lot of activity because the life of Christ as he's working in us, works itself, his life out through our discipleship with him. So when we find rest in Jesus, we're not talking about that we're excused from hard work. Not at all. We're not talking about the fact that we're often called a very difficult work. Indeed. But even then, even in those instances, there's nothing of the hopelessness that characterizes the life of so many people today. Because we know whatever the Lord sends us, wherever the Lord sends us as well. That's made to fit our needs exactly. And furthermore, again, in this process, remember once in his arms, he will not cast you out. John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not. That is, by, by any means, cast out. Norton makes a, a great point in his book when he says that fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. 
He says, we are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. And even when we run out of those tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or certain failures in our life, we tend to retain a vague sense that, uh, given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. So true, isn't it? I mean, we tend to think that Jesus, sooner or later, he's disappointed with us. That we just can't measure up. And what happens is that causes us to pull back, to withdraw. We don't need to be thinking that way. Sometimes it comes along where certain trials or or sufferings that come into our lives that cause us to question the gentleness, the lowliness, the humility in Christ's heart. Because as the pain piles up and the numbness takes over, as the months go by, at some point the conclusion by some people is, well, Jesus must have cast me out. But as Ortland points out, Jesus did not say that those with pain-free lives are never cast out. He says that all who come to him are never cast out. You see, the bottom line in this is that it's not what life brings to us, but to whom we belong that determines Christ's heart of love for us. The only thing required to enjoy that love is to come to him and to take upon ourselves his yoke. As the Apostle John explains, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. (coughs) Indeed, finding rest in Jesus is first coming to him in faith and then taking his yoke upon you. You can find rest in your journey with Jesus. You know, earlier I asked, why would anyone turn down such an invitation? Why indeed? But as God works in your life, you need not hesitate. You need not delay. You need to run to the open arms of Jesus. Because as the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, if you understand his heart, you will do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful invitation you have given us in your word. It's so magnificent, we can scarcely really comprehend all that that entails. But it's my prayer, Lord, that as we trust in you, we place our faith in you, as we fit ourselves into that yoke you have made for us. Lord, that we will appreciate with each passing day, each passing month, each passing year, the presence of you in our daily lives, in the growth that we experience in you, that we can be about the things of God, that we can be about those things to which you've called us, that glorify you, 
And Lord, we thank you for this tremendous privilege. We thank you for the tremendous wealth of your word. And we thank you for the presence of the Spirit of Christ within us to enable us to do your will. And we thank you for the joy and the rest that will follow for we Praise you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.